Welcome back to College for Christians. This is our ninth episode. I'm Chris Garretts, history professor at Bethel University. And I'm Sam Mulberry, academic support specialist. Sure, we'll take that. Among it's not, others, it's among not actually a title, but we'll go with that. No, that sounds impressive. Sam. That's right. So we are nine episodes into our first season, and we had a thought of doing maybe one kind of season-ending special summer episode that's in the works leave that open-ended but we wanted to kind of put a cap on things um, so as we neared the end of the season we realized we've, we've talked about a lot of big questions either that we commonly hear from families or prospective students or maybe questions we think they should be asking themselves but haven't so we've talked about reasons for going to college how to find a good fit and what the different options are and why they're so different we talked about why how much college costs and how to pay for it and why in general we think it's generally still a good value um but today we should tie up some loose ends. We've had a few questions come in from some listeners. We have at least one more question that I don't think we've necessarily got at sufficiently. And so uh, this is kind of a grab bag mailbag episode. And we are still open to getting other questions. So if there's something else we have not yet talked about this year, there is going to be a season two of College for Christians. We'll say more about that before this episode is done. But you can always email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Or maybe you just want to share some comments. Uh, this is all part Partly to help us start thinking through a book of some sort. And so looking for ideas, even if you don't have a question, maybe there's something that you wanted to share uh, from your own experience or perception of college admissions. All right. So, Sam, I think we got three big questions. That's Again, right. One is really from us, but two from listeners. So let's start with it's, it's kind of a, a listener inspired question. First of all, we want to thank our Bethel Seminary colleague, Andy Rowell, who has sent us a lot of resources. And it's partly because he's in the middle of this process with with his own kids um, and then taking a, not surprisingly, very serious approach to it, and I think is a very perceptive observer. Uh, but one of the resources he shared doesn't come from him, but from Sarah Einstein, who's a creative writing professor at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga. And so this was on Facebook, I think like around Easter is when she wrote it. It was a set of, I think, eight or nine pieces of advice she had kind of along the same lines we're giving. So it's meant for people who are thinking about college. She had uh, eight pieces of advice. But as I looked at them, I, I thought two of them were an interesting pair. And like in isolation, I understand both of them, but I want to put them together and, and ask the question. So let me quote, I think this is number six and number eight, if I remember from her list. So first, she writes, if your kid wants a religious education, send them to a religiously affiliated college or university. And then she goes on to say things we've said, which is like that varies a lot and what it means varies. You have to do your research. But if you want a religious education, you should look at a religiously affiliated college or university. But then her last piece of advice was, quote, if your kid can take advantage of state university subsidies to attend college debt free, by all means, grab that. And of course, state universities are not religiously affiliated. And so that left me wondering, Sam, how do we balance those two pieces of advice, which I think in broad strokes, I agree with. But let me put it as a question. Is it worth taking on debt to get a religious education or would you do better to graduate debt free from a state, i.e. non-religious university, if what you really want is a religious education? Well, and, and I think I think a piece of this has to do also with um other things come along with saying something is a religious uh, a religious education. Like like a lot of the schools you're going to be looking at compared to a state school are going to be a lot smaller yes. too. So so I think there are pieces there. There's the the religious education part, but then there's also the the opportunities you get at a, a school the size of Bethel. And I realized as as I was thinking about this question, there's something that I didn't talk about in that was 
central to my experience as a student here at Bethel, but also a core part of my job here at Bethel. Um, and it has to do with when you go to a small school, uh, using Bethel as an example, mm-hmm. but, but any other small private school, and I think especially private religious schools, there are opportunities that those campuses have mm-hmm. that are, um, let's call them co-curricular, right? Mm-hmm. They're not part of the curriculum. And and f- for me, uh, as both a student and as an employee here, it has to do with job opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I was a student here, got to work very, very closely with my faculty um, as a research assistant, as a teaching assistant. I was getting those types of jobs, working with um, people who I think of as really great scholars, really great teachers by the time I was a sophomore in college, mm-hmm. right? So there is there there are some of those types of things. And then as I've worked here for the last 20 years, one of my jobs is to work with a large team of TAs to give them some of that same training, some of that same investment that that was sort of put into me. So I think, you know, when, we, when you're thinking about those two things, like you, you need to think about a lot of the questions we talked about, kind of what do you want to get out of it? Mm-hmm. And, but also I think there are, there are opportunities that come with either types of school there. So I think that's a piece that I, I don't think I talked explicitly about, but some of the, the on-campus job opportunities that then play into career, vocation, things like that. I mean, I often say I learned to be a teacher mm-hmm. by being a teaching assistant yeah. uh, for, for three years here at Bethel. Right. And again, you might not get those. Like, for example, you work in our, our academic support center and tutoring program. I, I, I think I've heard you say, like, even compared to some other smaller colleges, it's a little unusual, the kind of undergraduate opportunities. But certainly, if you compare to the same function at a large state university, you have professional staff doing exactly. that kind of work. Those options might not be there. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there are embedded in this question, which is you know, we're setting up to like, well, what matters more, like the religious education or graduating debt free? It, it in some ways like encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about, especially early in the season throughout about what are you looking for in college? What makes for a good fit? How do you define value? And so the size of the institution, the opportunities available. Now, on the flip side, one thing you give up often by going to a smaller college, maybe for religious reasons, is those colleges can't support all the academic programs that like a land grant research exactly. one university can support. My nephew is graduating from high school in about two weeks. He's going to a state university to study architecture. There are hardly any schools of our type that can sustain an architecture program. Right. And and so like there again, like if what you're doing is either out of sheer intellectual curiosity and or uh, you know, a career pathway that you're trying to follow. If that's really what matters most, that might help make the decision for you. And it really is not then a matter necessarily of weighing religiosity versus debt or something. But here's why I was thinking about this, because I I think actually, especially for maybe some evangelical families, which is a good share of Bethel's population demographic, but it's also true of many state universities. Here's where I think this becomes a tense sort of question. Do you know who Dave Ramsey is, Sam? Okay, Dave Ramsey is uh, probably best known if you've ever encountered something called Financial Peace University. Oh, yes, I do. Okay. So Financial Peace University, uh, uh, many churches have hosted it. One we both have gone to has hosted it before. Dave Ramsey has made his name as a kind of um, business and wealth advisor. Not, I don't think just evangelicals, but he's evangelical, and I think a lot of his clients essentially are evangelical. And one of his central principles is he is trying to fight back against Americans' tendency to take on, um, I don't know if you would say unnecessary debt, but costly debt. 
And, and often this really is a problem for people, and it touches on things like credit card borrowing and uh, unnecessarily profligate spending. And he's trying to get people to be more prudent in the way they spend the resources. But as we talked about last week with the financial aid episode, um, not all debt is created the same, right? And I think attention then is, is it therefore uh, not just imprudent, but spiritually irresponsible as a good steward of your resources to borrow money to go to college? Uh, I remember this coming up in a kind of leadership meeting at Bethel, and then I also saw it in an article about problems facing Christian colleges at the Gospel Coalition, which is a conservative Calvinist group. So increasingly, places like this, religious colleges, were finding like Dave Ramsey uh, disciples questioning whether they ought to be taking on even a relatively low amount of college debt with a low interest rate for the larger concern of you shouldn't take on debt. And if that's really what matters to you, you could see why this advice about finding what still is a relatively low cost kind of state university that's subsidized by taxpayer money, right? Mm -hmm. Um, might be attractive. But the problem that occurred to me is a lot of the people who I think would be drawn to this live in a world that's deeply suspicious of state universities, of public education, uh, and might be more drawn for, the, the, I think, other reasons towards religious colleges. And it puts potentially those kinds of parents, certainly, and then I guess their students in, in a difficult bind. How do you reconcile those two things? Now, I guess for me, it's it's not as big of a problem because I tend to view this as a good investment. And as long as you've done your due diligence about looking at like graduation rates, loan default rates, that you're talking to your financial aid counselor about what's a reasonable amount of aid that you're exploring work study and other kinds of funding options, it, it still seems to me like a good investment. And if you are concerned about the religious side or the size of the school, then that does seem like a good investment. But it, it did strike me like I could see certain people that I would know um, looking at both those two pieces of advice and not really being sure which one to go with, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, you know. I, I think part of one of the one of the things you said when you first started to talk about Dave Ramsey, and you you even like struggled with, okay, how do I say like what what do we mean by taking on debt and what kind of debt? Mm-hmm. That I don't think. Um, I think there are ways to frugally but effectively attend a private school a private religious school um, I mean there's there's lots of ways to um, not even in terms of like cutting corners in terms of the education there's lots of ways that you can make choices to say okay I'm uh, I, I know for example when I um, different places that I lived when I was in school I could have a little more or less control over my uh, my budget in terms of you know what I ate or what I wore what I wore or when I would seek out text textbooks there are ways to get textbooks cheaper there are ways to like find used textbooks mm-hmm. to do you know it's it's much easier now than it was then so I think some of those costs that are on the sort of periphery beyond the the tuition cost um, I think are ways that you can mitigate some of that debt because the 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 problem with um, sort of no debt solutions is they either um, imply that you have some capital to, to allow you to move in the world mm-hmm. or they're putting limitations on what you're able to do because right. now because there are certain I mean there are certain careers and jobs where it's like you don't need an education in this but it's kind of hard to say I'm not going to take on any debt I'm not going to do this and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get into this particular field it's like like uh try to become a doctor with zero debt, like a, like a, a medical doctor, like at a certain point you're going to take on debt, 
but you know that that there there's a trade off for that. So I think it's thinking about the kind of debt, the amount mm-hmm. of debt, and that's the big thing I took away from Alex is like taking on debt isn't the scary thing. The scary thing is taking on more debt than you need to. Yes. Yep. And I think the final thing I'll say, because I, I know it sounds like I'm baking on Dave Ramsey and like this is terrible. Like, I, I think his larger point is I take it having not gone through financial peace, but having friends who do is I, I think Christians are called to be good stewards of, among other things, their wealth and resources. But they're also supposed to be good stewards of their gifts mm-hmm. and good stewards of their calling and their time. And, and so what you also need to be thinking about is what is God calling you to do in this world? What gifts do you have? And how are you going to connect those two things? And what are you going to do is, uh, to, to bring those gifts to bear on your calling and to f- start to flourish and discover yourself? And is that something you can do at a large university? In some cases, yes. But I think often what does drive uh, draw people to a smaller private religious college beyond just what we're probably going to talk about more with question two here, like what is the religious side like? It's the kind of relationships you form and the, the kind of chances you get to discover your right uh, calling and gifts that, that, Sam, that you talked about earlier. That's part of what you have to weigh as well. I think that's all part of being a good steward as, as a Christian. And if I can add one sentence that sort of slightly tips the hat, hat to season two of this podcast, there is the investment, the financial investment you make in college. Mm-hmm. There's also the investment of time and work that you put into college. Yep. And very often I'll see people making one but not both of those. And yep. we're going to talk about that in season two wow that's a teaser i think they call it okay let's move on to question two before we get to season two later this year uh this comes from someone we know in real life i think tessa rendall who doesn't live too far from where we're recording she's a bethel Bethel class of 99 that's right so um i think we actually answered maybe one question from tessa earlier we saved this one for later because in some ways it gives us a way to get back to the question of what is a christian college education what does that look like And, and we and when we did that episode, we said there are lots of models of this. And one of them is something like Bethel, um, which is uh, related historically to evangelicalism, in which there's very conscious integration of faith and learning, not just in Bible, theology, religion, but in all disciplines, in which there's a sense of shared faith binding the community together. Okay. And here's what she had to ask as a Bethel alum who now has students coming up towards college age themselves. How is the polarization of politics and faith change the experience of going to a Christian college like Bethel since she and her husband graduated around 1999-2000. So she adds, my perception then, so about 20 years ago, is that most people were conservative, but it didn't feel as divisive or all-encompassing as it does now. So it didn't feel like a meaningful part of the experience then. What does it feel like now? Now, Sam, you were here about 20-some years ago, so we've got an in-house witness to what she's talking about. Does this resonate with you? Yes, and I would say... um it's hard because I 20 years ago, I can talk about what it felt like to be a student. Now, again, I was also a student whose background was not the typical background of a Bethel student. So I came in feeling a little on the periphery of that, which is where I like to be in life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know the student. Exp- I mean, I, I know what we try to give the students as an experience, but I don't. I mean, this is a great question for a current student, mm-hmm. you know, in lots yep. of ways. My sense is that um, if I can say this, I feel like. In terms of political and religious polarization, the world has changed a great deal since 1999. Mm -hmm. Bethel has probably changed, but not as much as I feel like the world has changed, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know that the student experience in terms of that question is materially that different. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I don't get this sense. I mean, maybe I'm going to bounce this back to you because I only teach 
uh, really one class here, and it's with mostly first-year students. Mm-hmm. You're seeing students at different points along the way. You're also talking about some other issues that, you know, I think about doing modern Europe mm-hmm. or the Cold War yep. or, um, you know, World War One, World War Two courses. You might see a little bit more of that pol- uh, political polarization. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that. My, my, but my general sense is, Probably it has changed as as the broader culture has changed, but I don't think to the same degree. Yeah, I guess I would probably say something similar to what you did, Sam. Understanding I came here, I guess, three or four years after our listener graduated, but not too far away from that. Um, and I was I've never was here as a student. So all I know is the faculty perspective. I mean, like I remember coming here, not having gone to Christian colleges, not you know, having kind of been at evangelicalism, but not fully sort of worried about this. Like, was I going to a place where you basically had to be a Republican or else people would question your faith? And I guess what I found then is what I still find now, which is that um, on the faculty especially, but in the student body too, there's still a fair amount of political and ideological diversity. And increasingly, actually, some religious diversity. For example, I think we have more Catholic students now than we did 20 years ago, more Lutheran students now than we did 20 years ago. No, I mean, like, things that stand out to me from 20 years, 15, 20 years ago were, you know, people being involved in politics. There was a college Republican group. There's a smaller Young Democrats group. But most students mostly seeming kind of apolitical. I mean, I think culturally conservative, socially conservative, but necessarily bind their identity to it i remember like wanting to have like um wanting to talk about christian nationalism right and actually most students didn't seem all that invested in the notion and maybe they took it for granted but mostly they seem to see the problems with it and many of them could see the advantages to separating church and state and religious pluralism and we've had a decently robust uh conversation about interfaith initiatives um in the 15 and 20 years um since since tessa finished um, I was not here in 2016. I was on sabbatical during the Trump-Clinton election. But my sense, even from talking people were here, is there is a lot of uneasiness. And uh, I think the instinct generally when there's kind of more polarization, more conflict, whether because of the Swedishness or the pietistness or the Midwesternness, is to sort of retrench from it, to pull back, to avoid contentious issues. Which is not always great for a college setting. Like we have to engage with it. But like I'm not sure that if what you're expecting is that an evangelical college would be marked by culture warring, right? And that uh, you would have to demonstrate your pro-Trump bona fides to really feel like you fit in here. That that certainly does not describe my experience in any class. Um, and you're right. I like I do kind of verge closer to some hot button issues, but I also do as a historian. Mm-hmm. So it's always removed you know, at least by a few decades or so. So if you ask someone who teaches maybe in political science or philosophy or in sociology or theology um, or maybe some professional programs like social work or education, you get a different answer. Like part of what's going on is I think we also have more students who are here. Not that the religious component is unimportant, but I'm not sure it's the overriding component. I think it's more common now that it's um, students want a smaller kind of residential college experience. They're Christian and Bethel seems like a good fit. But increasingly, as with most students, they're here to prepare for a job, right? And I think in many ways we lament that and feel like they're missing some of what college has to offer. I think it also maybe that mitigates against the sense of, well, this then itself is a kind of culture war battleground or that um, this is a place that has to prove its ideological credentials in order to demonstrate that it's a faithful institution. 
I think for most students, as long as they feel like they're being prepared for their careers and they're forming important relationships to them and their religious needs are being met, like that, that's mostly what I would guess Bethel students are looking for. Yeah. And I would say at the same time, if a student is interested in engaging mm-hmm. in those conversations, they're definitely going to find faculty who would be, uh, I think, across the spectrum who'd be interested in those yep. conversations. And you're going to find, like you would at any time, you're going to find the people who are engaged in those yep. kind of conversations. So here's a question I would ask attached to this, yeah. Chris. Let's broaden this out from Bethel. If you're looking at schools, how do you – because I do think like um, – Anybody who works for the school, you know, we talked about this with tours, right? They're going to want to put a, they're going to, when you ask that question, they're going to read your question and say, okay, what is it that you want to hear? And how can I tell the truth, but also kind of tell you what you want to hear? What's a good way to get, maybe get the temperature of some of these questions as you're visiting different schools? Yeah. So here's the flip side. I think you will find some Christian colleges in sort of slightly different categories that in many ways seem very similar to Bethel, where you would get very clear and obvious signals that these are not just theologically conservative or biblically conservative, but they are politically conservative. I mean, just literally a couple of days ago, the Board of Trustees at Grove City College, which is historically, I think, a reformed Presbyterian school in Pennsylvania, I mean, it, Grove City has always been a, lo- a little unusual in that they haven't taken federal financial aid because they were worried about the strings that would be attached to that. They've always been politically conservative, but a few years ago, they actually removed that from their self description. Um, they wanted to really identify more as they're a Christian liberal arts college uh, in, uh, in a region of Pennsylvania. But they've come under a lot of criticism because of their attempts, like most Christian colleges, most evangelical colleges, to address racial injustice and racial inequity. Um, They had Jamar Tisby, who's a historian and racial justice activist, speak in chapel a couple years ago. And that's actually very common in evangelical schools. And a lot of these institutions now have someone who's in charge of what's usually called diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And, And you'll find us talking about well, what is racism? And is that just a personal problem? Is it a systemic or structural problem? But in the last year or so, this has become a hot button political issue in which on the right, this gets lumped in with what's called critical race theory, CRT. And so certain conservative alumni and faculty and other employees at Grove City started cons- complaining about that. They said that the school was being taken over by CRT. The board appointed a special committee, which reported yes, and they condemned Tisby's chapel talk for some reason. And uh, they condemned uh, one of the only black professors at Grove City for engaging in indoctrination in the class he was teaching. And this sparked then a furious backlash from some alumni who said, no, what you're talking about betrays the liberal arts spirit of this college. But the board just endorsed that report. Um, So you'll find colleges like that who really want to tap into um, that segment of the evangelical population or of the religious conservative population. Or there's a school in Michigan called Hillsdale College, which historically has not really identified itself as Christian, but it started to add kind of Judeo-Christian language to its identity. I mean, it's always been conservative, but also like a very like kind of um, traditional liberal in the sense like you want to encounter all perspectives. Uh, it's now supporting charter schools that are meant to provide a more conservative view of American history, right? So I, I think it's probably obvious from the way I'm describing, like this is not what I want for my kids, right? I want my kids to come to a place where they're going to encounter multiple sides, where there is religious diversity of different kinds, perspectival diversity, 
And I'm not saying you won't find any of that at schools like Grove City or Hillsdale. I think you actually it's it's there. But I think if you know what to look for and if you're attentive to like issues of faith and politics more broadly, you will hear some of that on college campuses. And what to look for is the response of the administration and of the board of trustees. And then at a certain point, it's going to trickle its way down into marketing and admission somehow. But those cues are often very subtle. Mm -hmm. I, I think mostly what you want to look for is like, is it in the news because of something like this? Or maybe it's something to ask faculty, right? Like, well, what, what do you teach about? And do you teach both sides of issues? Are there certain things that you would rule out of bounds? Like you wouldn't consider this perspective or you wouldn't read this author. Like, I think that's maybe a good, and somebody's like, this is what second season is going to be more about. Like, what does academics look like on a campus and how do you interpret a curriculum or a course? I think that'd be the other way to get at it, is actually to talk to someone who works there who's not in missions, but who actually does the work of teaching to ask, how do they handle the complexity of this? I mean, along with other questions, like how do you relate faith and learning or faith and politics, right? Like, I think those are all good questions to ask. So that's our second tease for season two. Should we move yeah, on to the third question so you can get one more tease? I'm going to give it away. We're going to record season two right here, right now. <laughs> we don't stop. Okay. So uh, thanks to our listeners for questions. And again, please feel free to keep on sharing at channel 3900 at gmail.com. But Sam, there was one other question we've kind of flirted with, I think, especially in our early college episode. But I wanted to just put it more boldly, boldly, I guess, and boldly, because it's something I know we both have thought about for almost a decade now. Should we take advantage of online options? I guess we there is students and parents. Mm -hmm. um, what advice do you have, given that COVID certainly has amplified this, but even before COVID, uh, lots of different types of colleges and universities were moving into online space. You even had some fully online programs. We've certainly now got kind of early college online programs. What advice would you give? I mean, reject it entirely, embrace it wholeheartedly, or maybe is there a critical middle <laughs> that you would encourage people to take? Uh, I'm going to, I think I said this in a very early episode, but I'm going to go back to the Oracle of Delphi and say the first piece of advice is know thyself, yeah. right? Like, and this is actually, if we want to find a silver lining in COVID era education is you got to experience some online mm -hmm. education. What did you think of it? Mm -hmm. What were the positives and what were the negatives? Um, my, I've been teaching online since 2013. I teach us, uh, Chris and I teach a summer course. We've built online courses together. Um, my overall sense is that, um, students who are very, um, sort of dedicated, disciplined students can do really well and learn a lot in an online course. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, that student can do really well and learn in probably any kind of course. Yep. So there I would think it's like, well, it's kind of a modality thing. Do you prefer that? Mm -hmm. um, what I've noticed teaching, though, is that students, and this is this is a lot, uh, maybe a majority of students that I encounter, like some of those uh, kind of academic discipline things, especially as an 18-year-old or 16- or 17-year-old, mm -hmm. Um, those things are still developing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I know in, in Bethel's case, so when I, I teach the same course online that I teach in person, and when I teach it in person, it could not be a more high-touch course right. in terms of both what we do in the classroom, but also the students' access to their instructors, the students' access to supports and TAs and, you know, all those kinds of things. And when I, the same teacher, teaches that course online, it, there's just so much less of it. Mm -hmm. And it's partially because it's hard to do. It's partially because the scheduling and timing of it is hard to do. I'm not saying I don't meet with students when I teach my online course, but 
I feel like they reach out a lot less and I have less direct access to them. I mean, there is this magic in, in, in as an instructor of being able to catch a student right before class or right after class and ask a meaningful question mm-hmm. to gauge how that student's doing or invite them in to say, hey, we should talk about it. Like they may say something and I and, and it may not even be about their struggles, but that gives me an opportunity to say, why don't you come by my office later? We can talk about that. And then that's an invitation to a larger conversation. So those things are – those things – are, I'm not saying they don't happen online, but they're they're much more difficult to organically make happen. So I would say, like again, know yourself as a student. Um, and the other piece of this is like there is a difference, and I think this is magnified by by online courses. There's a difference between being successful in a course, being defined as I got a good grade, yep. and being successful in the course, coming out saying. I learned a lot and I was impacted and changed by that. I think you can do that in an online course. Again, I find myself as someone who's taught for 20 years, I find myself never sure that that's really happening in the online course or it's really hard to do where in a face-to-face course, I feel like that a lot more. I feel like my, my fear with students, and I'll just put my cards on the table, is that they'll use that first definition of like, when I take online courses, I get good grades. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that's great, but your employer is going to look at grades maybe, but what's really going to matter in year two, three, four, five, twenty 20 of your career is – what do you actually know? What do you actually do? And that comes in the second definition. Right. And I mean, and are you able to learn? Yeah, exactly. That's another thing you're learning. I'm in college. They'll never go away. Yeah. I, I that's probably a very similar response to you. I, I think it depends on who you are as a learner and of course what you want. Um, I think it also like, this is not one single category. This is yet another example of diversity and complexity in higher ed. Online courses are taught by lots of different people in lots of different ways for lots of different reasons. And if you just kind of take it expecting one reason, you might be disappointed. Uh, I here again, maybe this is something to ask about. Um, as you visit a department, do you teach online courses? Why do you teach them? Uh, who teaches them? Uh, for example, I would guess. More often than not, online courses are being taught by adjunct instructors. So an adjunct instructor is someone who is not full-time. They don't have tenure. It doesn't mean they're a bad teacher. In fact, adjunct instructors are often very highly dedicated, very experienced teachers. And most great teachers started off as adjuncts. Right. I was an adjunct. I mean, I think you worked as an adjunct. Like, this is how we learn. And then some continue to do it. Some some are like they're practitioners and something, and they like to teach on the side. Some need flexibility. Some are staying at home as parents, right? Um there can be good reasons for that, but sometimes adjuncts are, are forced to make ends meet by teaching a lot of classes at the same time. And there's a capacity for every instructor, like every human, of what you can invest in that and how much feedback and how much high touch you can give through remote learning, right? And so I think that's one thing to be careful about. The other is I do think sometimes online is viewed as a way to cut corners, Right. They're, they're viewed as easy courses to an easy A to remove like a general education requirement or like a preliminary requirement for a major of some sort. And you can do that. And I can see the appeal. But to go back to what Sam's already said, think about what you're actually getting out of that class. Then I, I think it should be a red flag to any college student if you come away from that class saying, well, that was easy. 
right? I mean, I think there have been plenty of studies to demonstrate you don't actually tend to learn much from easy classes and learn. I mean, not just knowledge, but skills, but also the kind of person you're becoming, the kind of um, ability to wrestle with questions, develop good habits of the mind. Like that's all part of what you're getting that will not go away once college is done. That, that can be a very short-sighted decision if you're saying, well, I'm doing online because this will be easy. I won't have to invest much time. It'll get me through quicker. Um, you have to balance that against all the things we've talked about, like how much debt can you take on and how do you make a pathway through and you're trying to work as well. But like you've got to be asking yourself those questions if you want to make good decisions about what kind of education you're going to get out of this. Now, there can be good reasons to have online. Maybe an instructor can't be there in person, but they're able to teach online. I mean, essentially, that's what we were forced into during the lockdown. Um, like, I think the two of us, because we've had to do this, um, because the institution wants to invest in the space, we've taken it as a prompt to say, well, how can we do things differently then? Not just how can we take a face-to-face -face course, put it through some kind of like converter and it winds up online, but like given that space, how would you fill it differently than if you had a classroom with X number of chairs and you can get eye contact with people? And so we've tended to do a lot more things where you students write and they do personal reflection kinds of things because that's how we get to know students, right? Because otherwise we don't get eye contact with them and they don't drop in our offices anymore. Uh, I'm teaching an online class this summer that's uh, from a travel course we used to teach in Europe. That's not happening anymore. But I've tried to come up with ways to do virtual travel instead. And so I don't teach it like I would just like a lecture class. We build in digital mapping uh, and uh, kind of assignments to travel through Europe and the United States to study World War One. So I think there are other ways you can use online that actually can enrich the experience. But I think it's a little bit on you to, to ask questions of department heads or program directors or professors or of like former students who have been through this. What does online look like at this school, in this department, in this topic? Well, and, and I will say this, and maybe this is a way to, uh, to for a third time, tease season two, which is, I think, what you want to talk about next. Anyhow, uh, when I was first hired at Bethel, I want to pick up on something you said about using these courses to cut corners. And you actually used a phrase that I know you wouldn't use, but but it is a phrase that people use. You talked about getting gen eds out of the way. So I maybe I'll, I'll close this by talking. When I was hired, uh, when I went through my interview process, process. I interviewed with then uh, Bethel President George Brushhaber. And it was a very, very short interview. Because I have a weird Bethel history because I'd been teaching here for a while. And this is I was finally interviewing to be full time. And I think George probably was in a hurry that mm -hmm. day because it was a very short interview. But he said one, he basically said one thing to me. And he said, never, ever talk to a student about gen ed courses as something that they need to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. He said that you should never use that language. And I would say um, be cautious of schools that talk about it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is this is the tip toward season two. Like, how do the schools think about their curriculum? Think about their gen ed. Go to a school that cares about that. Okay, so let's let's finally talk about. It. So that that is it for our mailbag grab bag episode. We're going to be back again this summer to wrap it up. We have the notion that we might actually know a family, all of whose members are in various ways participating in this process. We thought we get kind of an insider perspective. Stay tuned for that. But our plan then is to come back this fall to air a second season, which would be kind of then the second half of the book. First season has been all about what are colleges like, what do you want out of them, and kind of like what's the admissions process and how do you pick one and how do you navigate financial aid, right? We want to dedicate the second season, the second half of this project to 
what does it look like to actually be a college student? And so I think especially when I think about that first year, they're not solely about that, but how do you make the transition from being a high school student or a high school student who took AP courses or whatever it was to being a full-time college student? What does that mean? Here too, there's going to be vocabulary that you can misunderstand or misapply. And I think Sam's absolutely right to say general education is maybe the most misunderstood thing for a first year for that matter, second, third, and fourth year, a college student. So I'm sure we'll do an episode about Gen Ed. We'll do an episode where we talk about picking a major and why you pick a major and should you double major and how do you get the most out of that. But here I want to lean on Sam's other roles. He's not just a professor, but he does work in academic support and in advising to think through some of the other things. Like how do you become a college student? What are some of the, you've already hinted at this this season, like some of the differences between being a student in high school and college. Um, what resources are out there that maybe students don't take advantage of that they could? What what kinds of disciplines, maybe around time management, you need to think about? Um, so we'll we'll generate a list of topics, and then again we'll solicit questions, and we'll maybe bring in an expert or two from other fields. But we're looking forward to getting you all to college, and then helping you think through what it looks like to succeed in college, to thrive, to flourish in college, and that'll be our fall season two. So Sam, thanks for doing this with me. Anytime. Yeah, this actually mirrors a lot of conversations we have. We just happen to turn on the recording device right. and publish as a podcast. So we, we'd, we'd be talking about this anyway, but we appreciate the chance to invite you in to hear your feedback and maybe do just a little bit to make this process a little less mysterious, a little bit less stressful, and maybe a little bit more rewarding as you do wrestle with what is the purpose of college and how do you do it well. So thanks for listening to season one. We'll have one more episode to wrap it up, and then we'll see you in the fall as we talk about what it's like to be a college student. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.